Thank you for downloading our podcast. Zachariah is a prophet who delivers a message to Israel regarding their national failure to prioritize the rebuilding of God's temple. We might say, well, this is only a building. So what really is the big deal? The big deal is that we see a deeper problem in the stalling of the construction project. The problem in the issue is whether the Lord really can build his people in his city into a place that is worthy of his dwelling. So can the Lord build his city? Is the Lord sovereign enough to bring his redeemed people into his presence as he has promised at the exit of Eden? Please stay tuned to this series on Zechariah, where we consider the night visions. Are they visions of doom or deliverance? We've said before that the book of Zechariah, in order to understand the book, you got to think of the visions showing the goal of what the Lord intends, and then Zechariah lays out what the Lord is doing. So if you want to look at Zechariah 10 and 11, we're basically thinking of this in terms of Zechariah 5 with the vision uh, where you have the Lord coming to bring judgment against the land, uh, the scroll that lays out the prosecution and the sins of what's going on, even in the context of Israel. So it's not just outside of Israel, but the Lord is pointing out there's a fundamental problem even in Israel. We think about this also with the backdrop of the implications of Christ going into Jerusalem, uh, as we mentioned with the donkey, the limousine sort of uh, way of thinking of this in terms of our culture. That is Christ seated upon a purebred donkey going into the land or the city of Jerusalem with the expectation that the people would receive him as king. So Zechariah 10 and 11 then setting the stage for how Christ is going to find Jerusalem as a warning, as a pattern, uh, as a call for us to think about ourselves in light of this. Because Zechariah 10, we can say, oh, that's just the shepherds. The shepherds have a problem, so the shepherds need to be careful. Now, now that's true. Uh, Zechariah 10 is communicating that. But Zechariah 11 is going on and saying, how did these shepherds uh, come into a position of shepherding God's people? Is because the flock wanted such shepherds. In other words, the Lord gave the flock exactly what the flock wanted and deserved. So when you think about this, say, okay, well, maybe that's just a problem then in Zechariah's day. Thing is, we can find Israel receiving Christ exactly as his prophecy predicts. We can think even in our day and age, the tragedy of the podcast, Rise and Fall, of Mars Hill. It tells us that the same problem is still present in terms of our day-to-day -day life. It's not just something that's back then. It's not something that's over there. We can see an example even in our culture in our day. And again, I don't think, unfortunately, that's unique. I think that's something that we can see going on uh, very much today, but that's just obviously probably the one that we talk about most as Christians. So in terms of, of Zechariah 11, how do we deal with this? Because on the one hand, we might want to say, well, I'm, I'm good, I'm, I'm holy, I'm pure, I, I'm not like this. But the reality is we, we are, we, we, we struggle with this. This is something that describes the heart of man. Isaiah 53, all of us like sheep have gone astray. It reminds us we need a shepherd. The other thing is we can say is we can sort of have this fortress mindset of saying, well, the problem's out there, the, the problem's with the other people. We got it all together. 
But the reality is, that's not what Zechariah is saying. Because this is the people who have come out of exile, have started rebuilding the temple, have excitement and zeal of being back in the land, and then we read this, this tragedy of what's going on. And so how do we then know whether we are fake sheep or true sheep? For conscience is weak, we're going to constantly beat ourselves up and thinking, well, you know, maybe I haven't done enough. And the reality is we haven't done enough. How do we know if we're looking to a true shepherd or a false shepherd? Because obviously this is warning us. We're making shepherds of our own making, of our own desires, and not looking to a true shepherd. How do we have confidence that we are looking to the right shepherd and we are his sheep? And so as we look at this, we'll see first the shepherd's doom and secondly the shepherd's division. So basically taking verses 1 through 3 as a poem that's setting the stage of this prophecy, then looking at 4 verse 17 where you have the shepherd or the under-shepherd commanded by God to basically play the role of God. So let's begin with the shepherd's doom. As we remember, we have the judge who's coming into Canaan. He's going to deal with the shepherds. Now we have in, in chapter 11... We have sort of this parallel in verse 1, open to me the doors. You have in 10 verse 1, ask rain of the Lord. So they're beginning with commands. Chapter 10 is coming to the people of Israel saying, repent of your idolatry. Don't trust in the false gods. Open yourselves to me. Now you have a movement from that call basically to repent, trust in the Lord, to now chapter 11 where it's too late where the Lord's now saying to Lebanon, open up the doors, I'm coming in. Is not the Lord coming to Lebanon, cry out to me and ask of me. So, so what's the significance of this? We think of, of Lebanon being a place where we think of white-capped mountains, we think of cold water, we can really relate to a place like this in Montana, or um, basically people on the West Coast, where we think of tall mountains, have a continual white cap, you have water that flows from the mountains, nourishes the valley. We can think of the prosperity that can come from that, the confidence somebody could have in that. And so that's sort of the setting of Lebanon. It means white, most likely after the white-capped mountains. We also think of Lebanon having very thick and lush forests. Uh, the cedars of Lebanon, 1 Kings 5, 1 Kings 7, uh, we have their... Uh, the recounting of the building of the temple and its magnificence and its splendor. And its splendor comes from these trees that were purchased from Lebanon. Uh, we have, you know, explicitly 1 Kings 7, 2 through 5, speaking of that majestic uh, entrance to the temple and the greatness of the beams and pillars and how it's eye-catching, the, the reality of that coming from the cedars of Lebanon. Ezra 3 verse 7, again, the Lord comes and he's, as they're rebuilding this second temple, spoken of here, that they're to go to Lebanon, they're to get these, these cedars, these trees that are magnificent. The Lord recounts that he's the one who plants these trees, he owns these trees in Psalm 104, and you can walk through scripture and find again and again the significance of the cedars of Lebanon. So we might say, well then, What's the problem? Why is the Lord commanding them, open the doors? It seems that Israel and Lebanon have this great relationship, uh, that the temple commemorates their glory and majesty because their very trees make up the place where God meets with his people. So you would think that, that this is great. 
we find already in Judges 3, verse 3. And the tragedy of Judges also to keep in the back of our mind in light of this text. You have a pattern in Judges, don't you? Where you have, and Israel did what was right in her own eyes, and Israel did evil. The Lord handed them over to a particular people, and then they cried out to God. The pattern changes towards the end of Judges, and that the Lord hands them over to a people, and the people stop crying out to God. Eventually, they end up with Samson, the judge that they deserve, as the one uh, who shows who they are, a, a people that uh, flirt with idolatry and paganism and not a people fully committed to the Lord, but half-hearted committed to the Lord. So Samson becomes sort of that judge they deserve. So if you have the pattern of judges in the back of your mind, it helps us understand what Zechariah 11 is getting at, just sort of that you know, this is a judge we want, this is a judge we look for, this is a judge we trust in. And so Lebanon, already in Judges, is identified as leading Israel into false worship, into idolatry. And as, as we hear that, say, okay, so this is not a place when the Lord comes and he's coming to make peace. As he says, fire is going to devour your cedars. In other words, these great trees that they trust in are not going to protect them. God will consume them. Uh, so again, there's that severe warning. But then we go on where he also says, Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedars has fallen. Wail, oaks of Bashan. So we're finding this pattern of these trees that these nations trust in. And we say, well, what's the significance of Bashan? Well, we think of this as a place where Israel has their skirmishes, Amos uh, 4 speaks of the cows of Bashan. Again, not a very nice way for him to address the wives of particular men. Uh, but whatever the case, he's saying that they're exploiting people. They're, they're not being kind uh, to the poor, to the fatherless. They're just exploiting them for their own benefit. And so you're seeing Bashan being another place where it's not something where uh, the justice of God, the love of God is being manifested. Further, we have a warning in Isaiah 2 where you have these oaks of Bashan, the cedars of Lebanon identified together, leading to Isaiah 10, 33 to 34, where Isaiah then indicts or comes against this particular place and tells them that they're not to trust in their trees or their pride. So the trees become a metaphor for them looking at themselves and saying, look at our magnificence, look at our riches, look at who we are. And Isaiah says, listen, the axe can come against you and the axe is laid at the root, the axe is here, so be careful because the Lord is going to cut down these, <clears throat> these particular trees. And again, that's in contrast and it's important to understand the prophetic tradition in Zechariah. Isaiah 10 giving a warning of these two particular places of their majestic trees being cut down is after the, the, the tree of Jesse or the tree of Judah is cut down and we have a shoot that comes from the stumps. In other words, they've cut off the kings of Israel, but the Lord is the one who's going to uh, resurrect him and bring him in, into history and accomplish his will and he will bring his judgment. So you have that play Again, of strength manifested through weakness, God being the underdog, but showing that everything's going exactly as the Lord intends. And so in, in terms of this, we, we hear then this continuing in, in this poem in verses 1 through 3. 
of the whale of the shepherds for their glory is ruined. So again, confidence of the tree, the pride, the glory of who they are, cut down. Prophets have said this. Zechariah is building and consistent with this very tradition as we would expect him to be. But as it goes on, we think of Jeremiah 25. Again, that echo of where Jeremiah tells the shepherds to cry out. The shepherds are going to cry out and there's no relief. And so that's really setting the stage for the rest of this prophecy of the shepherds saying, we deserve the Lord's protection. And Jeremiah is saying, cry out. And there's no response. There's, there's nothing there. There's, there's no hope. And, and verse 3 sort of summarizes where this chapter is going. And it's very important. Shepherds wail, no answer. We have then this language of the roar of the lions and the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Now, when you think about a lion, we can say, okay, well, the, obviously it's a powerful animal. It's a powerful beast. But the lion also, we have to think about God being that lion. We think of Judah in Genesis 49 being like the lion's whelp. Uh, Judah being that lion that's had a great face and lies down and no one would rouse him. And so the warning is that there is going to be a cutting off of the lion. There's going to be a cutting off of their kings. There's, there's going to be a turmoil in this whole place where their shepherds will cry out, there's no answer. They're looking to their king, but they can't see a king, and they're wondering what's going on. So these first three verses are not setting a positive tone, that the Lord is going to come against this very place. So the Lord's coming from the north, the Lord's going to bring his judgment. And as the Lord brings his judgment, they're going to recognize that everything that they desire has been removed. Jeremiah predicts this, Isaiah predicts this, Zechariah is predicting this. But you can think of, of something else that's going on here. When you have this warning in Jeremiah, the warning of these cedars being cut off, you can hear also John the Baptist having an echo to this in terms of Israel. So you think of the vision, Zechariah 5. You look here, Zechariah 11. You think about the fire coming against the pride of these particular districts. Uh, the, the cows of Bashan who, who rouse themselves up and think they're significant, exploiting others. You know, these warnings that, that come to the people. What does John the Baptist say? The axe is laid at the root. In other words, the very people of Israel or have to come to grips with when Christ enters history, this is their status. This is a scenario. That they can cry out, they can look to the king, but their king's not going to answer. It's going to be silent, and ultimately we know what they do to their king. And so these verses, we can skip over and say, okay, well, it's just some sort of a poem. But you're seeing how these first three verses give us a lot of insight into the intention of verses 4 through 17 and where the Lord is laying out the situation uh, with Israel. And so again, we think about these shepherds, we think about the falseness, we think of Ezekiel 34, and so there's a lot of things in the prophetic tradition uh, we can call to mind. And so when, when we hear this, we may say, well, it sounds like these people are just victims. They don't have an opportunity to repent, they don't have an opportunity to cry out to God. This doesn't seem fair. But notice then, as we go on in these verses, that that's not what Zechariah wants us to understand or to deduce from this. Going on then in verses 4 through 11, 
where we have then this uh, issue going on that the Lord is the one who's going to deal with these individuals. Uh, the Lord is telling him to be the shepherd who's coming to the flock of slaughter. So we think in 10 verse 3, where the Lord's anger is against the shepherds. So we might hear in verse 4, where the Lord is saying to the prophet, sort of what you have with Hosea, praying, playing the role of God, coming to an unfaithful bride, the bride taking the role of Israel, Israel not being faithful to God, and Hosea continues to pursue her. So here we, we have a similar scenario where Zechariah is going to play the role of the shepherd coming to the people. And we have this identity of this uh, shepherd coming to the flock that's not very nice. It's a flock that is doomed to slaughter. So when we hear that, we say, okay, well, Zechariah 10 was talking about the false shepherds. And it seems that Zechariah is coming to a, a flock that's being led by a false shepherd. And so it seems that, that, that the flock are being victims. Now we might hear that and also say, well, what's, what's wrong with this in, in a sense? I mean, isn't this kind of what cattlemen do? Shepherds do eventually. When the sheep get old, they butcher the sheep, right? I mean, we can think of Abraham, uh, when he has guests, he butchers a calf. Uh, that's not necessarily sinful. It's seen as hospitality. Uh, we can think of uh, Jacob and Esau, the butchering of a goat, uh, even when Jacob's doing deception. Like, that's, that's not the ultimate crime in the passage. And so we might hear this and say, well, what, what's the problem? If the shepherd's leading the sheep to a place where they're going to be butchered, that, that seems that's kind of the lifespan of what happens to, to the sheep, that they get to a point where this is, this is what you do. But we have to look deeper then. We can't just, just take this as some sort of a, just a, a way of being a good shepherd or a better shepherd. That's not the intention here in terms of literal sheep. But it's that language of slaughtered. It's not butchered, it's slaughtered. It's important to understand that because when you look at the, the language of slaughtered in Scripture, we think of, say, Jeremiah 7, uh, verse 32, Jeremiah 12, 3, Jeremiah 19, 6, where the Lord comes, and when he comes, there will be a place known as a valley of slaughter where he manifests his judgment. It's a bloodbath. It's something that's, that's horrible that, that happens. And so this language of the shepherd coming to a flock that's doomed to slaughter is telling us right here that, that this is a, a, a group of sheep that are doomed to face the Lord's judgment. They're, they're doomed to face the consequence. As it's repeated again in verse 7, so I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And so we have this identity of, of this sheepfold that's not conscious of who they are, going to fall into the hand of God's judgment. And, and we may say, well, then it just seems again that the shepherds are to blame. That's, that's the problem here. But we find that it's not just a problem with a shepherd because we find that now that there's a problem that's going on here. We have that they buy them to slaughter them. They go and punish and those who sell them say, blessed am, I, blessed am I, because I have become rich. Verse 5, it seems that the fundamental problem here 
It's just unbridled greed. It's not a commentary on whether it's right or wrong to sell sheep or to trade sheep. That's not the commentary. The commentary is that individuals are are showing no compassion, no pity at all. And that people are just commodities being used and traded, uh, much like what we can say today and with human trafficking. It's along that lines. Human beings become merely a commodity. There is no loving what is right of God and hating what God hates. It's just, hey, this is working. And because I'm experiencing blessing, it means God must be with me. Now, again, we, we say, well, this must just be the problem of the shepherd. But when you look at this and you look closer, the Lord doesn't have inhabitants or pity on the inhabitants of the land. The Lord is the one who then in verse 6 now makes it out to be this dog-eat-dog world that he's going to hand the sheep over to one another. And so the problem is the sheep do not have an issue with what the shepherds are doing. That's not the problem. The sheep are just upset that they're not the shepherds able to buy and sell. That becomes a problem. So they're not wrestling with, well, what's the real fundamental issue? What, what are we to do in showing the Lord's compassion and love? You just have just this buying and selling of commodities and human beings without any regard to the Lord of what's right and wrong. So it's not that they're concerned about the shepherds. They're concerned that they may not profit from this. That's the fundamental concern. And so when, when you hear this, you say, okay, so this is a warning echoing what we find with Hosea 12 in the context of Scripture, where we already mentioned Hosea being the one playing the role of God. What's his indictment? Well, in Hosea 12, the merchants are proud. They, they don't care. Their, their God, their, their drive is riches, is wealth. That's what drives them. That's what they want. Any way to get there is, is what they desire. They don't think about the particulars or the principles or what honors the living God. And so that's the issue of what's going on here. It's not an issue of buying or selling sheep. It's an issue of doing so without any regard to one's status and standing in the living Lord. Their idol, their idolatry, their focus is basically the bottom line, not serving the living God. And so when we have this, this situation going on, it's not just the shepherds, it's the sheep involved in this, it's a communal problem. We have then this reminder of who, uh, the, of what's taking place, as the Lord has already given a warning. The Lord has said, I'm not going to have pity on those people in Deuteronomy 13.8, the ones who are trying to entice individuals with their own gods, ones who are trying to entice people with something other than the true God. The Lord says, I won't have pity on such people. So Deuteronomy 13.8 is being called to our attention. This is pretty serious that's going on here. And so we, we can wonder, well, has God just abandoned his people as he turned his back? I mean, how, how bad is this? Well, as we go on and we find uh, what has happened, we have in verse 7 now where Zechariah says, so I became the shepherd of the flock, destined uh, to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And so Zechariah now is sent by the Lord to shepherd the flock. So the Lord told him what he is to do. Now he's doing it. He's living it out. And he takes two staffs, and he names these staffs 
Uh, one is favor, which basically means uh, pleasing ones can be like a pleasing aroma to God, like the sacrifices. Something that's honorable to the Lord is, is basically what, what it's getting at. Um, as he becomes a shepherd, he has favor, pleasing to the Lord, and union. Uh, this would be a binding or, or a pledge that one would have that uh, whatever you're entering into, you're, you're united in that, you're joined to it, that's your commitment. It's, it's something that identifies you and, and binds you together. Uh, so it's basically as it comes across in English. It's favor and union that he names his staffs. And so as he goes around and he shepherds uh, the, this particular people, he has become a shepherd to them. He then takes uh, three shepherds and he, he beats them or destroys them. And as we hear that, that he's taken these shepherds and he's destroyed, in verse 8, these three shepherds. Uh, there's a whole variety of theories that I, I don't even have time to get into. Basically, people look at different priests, they look at different kings, they look at different kingdoms. And you have to do a lot of creative jumping jacks, I would say, to make those particular names fit into these three shepherds. I think a better way to understand this is if you look and how the number three is used in scriptures. I'm not getting into numerology or anything like that. But it's the reality of, of what is the play on three? What does what the Hebrew language do with this? And so just a few examples. Uh, we think about Job. He has seven sons, three daughters, making ten children. Ten, ten commandments, ten plagues, making completion. So the three there is making his children or his family complete. Uh, the buying and selling of slaves, 30 shekels, as mentioned here, Exodus 21, a complete number. And again, in the Hebrew, 330, uh, there's a similarity in how that number's used. We think in Deuteronomy 7, verse 24, where you have the three kings that are put down when you have these visions of the last days. You think of Amos, where he begins, for three transgressions and for four. So three... The Lord is upset, but the fourth one is over the line. You have the same sort of thing you can find in Proverbs for three or for four things. So three, you got the Lord's attention. He's upset, but the fourth, that's over the line. That's beyond what's expected. So using those examples, it seems that the three shepherds he destroys is basically he's destroying what's going on in the context of Israel. So we have to see these staffs as symbolic of the Lord's relation with Israel, Zechariah being the one who comes to Israel, the Lord surveying Israel as he comes into Jerusalem, Zechariah 8. And as he enters into Jerusalem, he looks upon them and goes, oh my goodness, what's going on here? For three transgressions, for three false shepherds. In other words, the three, four going over the top of what the Lord is dealing with. So it's dealing with a complete number. And so as Zechariah destroys these shepherds who are false shepherds as this is symbolized here with the Lord is upset that then he takes his staffs and, and he breaks his staffs he breaks the staff favor he breaks uh, his staff union and as we hear this say well what's what's going on here why why is he doing this what what's happening well he turns to them and in the midst of this even before we hear the commentary really and he wants them to, to understand or, or to pay him the wages. That he breaks it, annuls the covenant, it was annulled, and he says, hey, if this is good for you, uh, pay me my wages. So they pay him the wages, they pay him the wages of the potter's field. 
And so again, these 30 shekels weighing out, you have a symbolism in Scripture and significance of this. Uh, Exodus 21, 32. is a compensation if a slave dies, is gored by a bull, um, and the slave is still you know, fulfilling or paying off his debt in the context of Israel, you pay the owner 30 shekels. That's, that's the payment regardless of the amount of debt that's left. That's, that's the compensation for this. Jeremiah 19, 1 through 3, uh, most likely what Matthew cites in the context of Judas betraying Christ. And it says this was to fulfill the words of Jeremiah. Most likely Jeremiah 19, 1 through 3, and this passage are the backdrop to that betrayal narrative in Matthew. That when Christ is sold for the 30 shekels and then Judas returns the 30 shekels and uh, they say, well, this is blood money. We can't do this. And they bought a potter's field. You take Zechariah 11, Jeremiah 19, 1 through 13, you have there the symbolism of the buying of that potter's field after betraying or destroying the shepherd of the sheep. So, in terms of this big picture then, Zechariah playing the role, he's playing the role as to how the Lord is going to be received. Israel can't turn to the shepherds and say, well, they misled us. Zechariah is saying, no, the word of God was clear. You know your shepherds, you know you're called to ask of him, you know you're called to serve him. You have not served him. You have looked for a shepherd of your own making, you have come up with your own desires. As a result of that, the shattering of, of the staff favor means that the Lord has now broken that covenant that has been made with Israel. So Palm Sunday, so often up to this point, when we think of Christ riding into Jerusalem, we mentioned this is sort of that limousine uh, you know, parade going on where you're parading the leader saying, here's a leader as we've seen the donkeys with David and, and the symbolism in Scripture. As Christ goes into Jerusalem on the donkey, it's not... Christ going to sit upon the Davidic throne. It's Christ knowing full well what Zechariah 11 is holding out. The shepherd is going to be betrayed. The shepherd is going to be destroyed. And as a result of that, the shepherd is going to destroy or annul this arrangement that is made with Israel and this national covenant that has been made with Moses. As we go on, we see that this is confirmed. So the Lord again tells him to take uh, this equipment of the foolish shepherd, probably these broken staffs. Because again, what are you going to do with broken staffs? That's, that's foolish. You're not going to use a broken staff to fight off an animal. You can't use a broken staff to keep the sheep in line. You can't use a broken staff to test the land that's in front of you. It's, it's something that's foolish. And so the Lord is saying he's going to raise up the shepherd who doesn't care for those who are being destroyed. Uh, we find how how devious and how horrible this is, that it actually tears off their hooves. I mean, this is, this is a, a brutal wolf that, that attacks the sheep where there, there's basically nothing left is the implication of it. And as he lays this out, he's going to eventually deal with this worthless shepherd. Now again, individuals take this and they say, well, this has to be the Antichrist or this has to be one individual shepherd. And again, I would argue from the three shepherds that he destroyed that verses 15 through 17 is not dealing with one particular shepherd, but the Lord is giving a warning to Israel, to us today, that 
he may eventually turn his people over to receive the shepherd that they desire, that they want. Uh, isn't this what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3? You know, the people in the last days will go for what their itching ears want to hear. And so again, as we hear this, we say, wow, this is, this is rather treacherous. Uh, this is, it, it is humbling. It's sobering, I mean, to be honest. Because the Lord's eventually saying, I may give you exactly what you want if you keep pursuing what you want. And so again, it's that reminder, chapter 10, call out to the Lord. And so it, it leaves us sort of with a situation of, well, how, how do we know if we're a true sheep or a true shepherd or one of the false sheep who, who have been deceived? How, how do we know this? And I think it goes to a parallel passage that commentators, I think, correctly understand 10 and 11 with Ezekiel 34, where you have there the Lord talking about more explicitly what the false shepherds are. What are they? Well, what Zechariah is putting rather crassly of those that just buy and sell the sheep. But Zechariah is saying the sheep don't even care. They just want to be the ones who are selling and not the ones who are sold. That's the fundamental problem. They, they don't have a problem with the exploitation and the immorality that's going on, they, they just have a problem that they might be the one that's sold. And so Ezekiel 34 lays out, you know, the problem is that the false shepherds only care about their own well-being, their own prestige, their own significance, their own benefits in terms of what they can gain and profit from the sheep. And Ezekiel 34 is a promise that these shepherds will be destroyed. But where does Ezekiel 34 end? And that's where, where you have to go through the whole text. It doesn't just end with the Lord saying, well, I'm just going to leave my sheep alone because they've rejected me. I don't care about them. And, and I, I don't care if they struggle in sin. I'm just going to leave them. Ezekiel 34 gives us a rich promise. I will shepherd my sheep. In Ezekiel 34, it goes on to the Lord being the shepherd who brings his sheep to the situation of Hebrews 12. He brings us to his heavenly city. This is why it's important when the Apostle Paul, probably one of the most important exhortations in the New Testament, I, I would argue. In Ephesians 5 verse 10, what does the Apostle Paul say? Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, here in Zechariah 11, what, what are the people failing to do? They're not asking what is pleasing to God. They're not asking, what's wrong with human trafficking? They're not asking, what's wrong with exploiting my neighbor? How, how does this offend God? What's wrong with trampling the orphan, right? They're not wrestling with that. They're saying, I just don't want to be the orphan. I just don't want to be the one trampled. I don't want to be the one sold. That's what they're worried about. The Apostle Paul is exhorting us to have a bigger perspective on life. You're set apart in Christ. You're his children. As you are as children now, what does it look like for me to live out the gospel? What does it look like for me as a redeemed person to want to bring glory to God? What is his value system and where am I not conforming to this value system? It's one of the reasons why I, when I pray that the Lord would remove the desire for these sins. In other words, that, that the very things we think will give us joy are not the things that give us joy. Serving the Lord is what gives us joy. The problem is after the fall, we don't believe that. 
I mean, the Apostle Paul himself, a man who has seen the resurrected Christ, witness that called into the third heaven, had an Isaiah-like experience as he recounts to the Corinthian church. What does he say? He says, I'm the one that disciplines my body. Why? So I'm not disqualified from the race. You see, this is the Apostle Paul saying, I discern what is pleasing to the Lord, what I can do that's pleasing to the Lord, and what's not pleasing to the Lord. Even Paul, the Apostle, is not above this rule. But the call fundamentally as a sheep is we hear the voice of our shepherd. Like the Bereans, discerning the true Christ from the false Christ. Discerning the true gospel from the false gospel. Knowing the true Lord from a false Lord. And so when we ask that question at the beginning, how do we know if we're members of the true sheep? How do we know if we hear the voice of the true shepherd? Well, again, if we're weak in conscience, why are we weak in conscience? What are we asking? Have I done enough? Isn't that the wrong question? Because the reality is we will never do enough to please the Lord after the fall. We can't. The question really is, do I believe in Christ as my Redeemer? That's the place when you have your doubts and assurance. That's where you start. Do I believe Christ is my Redeemer? And when you can answer yes, because I recognize life is only found in Christ, I cannot secure life in my own strength. That's the voice of your shepherd. Now you move into the exhortations of Zechariah 11. How do I please my Redeemer as his redeemed? How do I live more consistently as a slave of righteousness rather than a slave to sin? What do I need to put to death as I know the great Melchizedekian priest has laid down his life and secured me? Because that is the other side of Palm Sunday, isn't it? When Christ goes to Jerusalem, they reject him, they betray him, they sell him as a dead slave, basically. They buy a potter's field, pat themselves on the back. But Christ is raised from the dead. We go back to that beautiful Pentecost sermon that we went to last week. Remember the Pharisees say to Judas, not our problem. You're the one who sold them. That's on you. See, that's Zechariah 11. Hey, we're not the guilty sheep traders. We can find the technicality. What do you have with Peter? Oh man, we heard the sermon. We chanted crucify. What do we do? Peter basically says, repent and believe. Be baptized and receive the blessings of Christ. There's a way of putting that into our language. In other words, bow your knee before your Savior. Peter doesn't lay out for them a series of to-dos, doesn't lay out for them a bunch of self-help things. He says, put yourself under the yoke of Christ, find your redemption in Christ, and desire to live for Christ. This is why I love how catechism puts it so well. We live out of gratitude for our Savior. We're not adding to Christ's work. We're not deceiving ourselves into thinking we're pleasing God by our own works. We are those who take hold of Christ by faith, confident that we are united and joined to our Savior because of Christ and what he has done. We walk in that union, experiencing true life, the river of life that flows within us. We hear the gospel. We hear the exhortations. We hear the voice of the true shepherd the Melchizedekian priest who speaks to us through his gospel message and leads us as our shield and defender. 
Let us desire then to love the things that God loves, to hate the things that the Lord hates, and to continually live out of gratitude as a redeemed people. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.